0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Criminology Academy podcast where we are criminally academic. My name is Jen Tosley.
1: And I'm Jose Sanchez.
0: And it's episode 84. And for today's podcast, we are hosting Professor Michael Godfredson, who is speaking with us about his career as a criminologist, his work on self-control theory and the age crime curve and his thoughts and advice for newly minted assistant professors.
1: Michael Godfredson is Chancellor's Professor of Criminology, Law and Society, Sociology and Law at the University of California, Irvine. From 2012 to 2014, he was president of the University of Oregon. He has written about the causes of crime, delinquency and victimization, and about decision making in the criminal justice process. His work is focused on the implications of general theory about crime for research design and public policies and crime. He is a fellow of the American Society of Criminology and the Western Society of Criminology.
0: In this episode, we talk to Michael about a couple of his publications, including A General Theory of Crime, which was co-authored with Travis Hershey and published in Stanford University Press in 1990, as well as Modern Control Theory and the Limits of Criminal Justice, which was also co-authored with Travis Hershey and published in Oxford University Press in 2020. So with that being said, let's bring Michael in. Hi, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us today. We are delighted to have you on the podcast. It's
1: my pleasure. And I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So we want to kick off and really start this podcast by going, you know, hopping in our way back machine and going towards the beginning of your career as a criminologist. And we know that you're Family had a traditional research scholarship, including your dad, Don Gotfordson, younger mm-hmm. brother, Gary Gotfordson, um, your sister-in-law, Denise Godfordson, all the Godfredsons. Um not all of them. <laughs> no
0: a lot of them though. We uh, <laughs> yeah, were joking yeah. that it's the royal family of criminology.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, where so where did we hide the royal jewels, if you can <laughs> right? Because I'd like to find them. Yeah. So
1: okay. Yeah. And you know, but you're that dawn, he was the founding dean of the School of Criminal Justice at Rutgers uh, University, and you began your academic trajectory at the University of California, Davis, uh, where you received your bachelor's degree. During this time, you published your first academic publication and empirical analysis of pretrial release decisions, which was on um, how judges make bail decisions. So given all that you accomplished while you were an undergraduate student, you know, as you entered college, did you know early on that you wanted to be a criminologist and you know, be an academic? Or was this something that sort of developed over time?
2: I didn't know it at all. In fact, my father, when I was growing up, and actually as I was an undergraduate, was not an academic. Uh, he was in research. He was a, first the Department of Corrections in California for quite a while. And then for the National Council on Crime and Delinquency which is, is still, but at that time, he became the research director for the National Council on Crime and Delinquency. It was sort of in public policy. But no, I started as an undergraduate, probably uh, I having a psychology major as an undergraduate, and thinking that I would be a, a, but I worked in a biology laboratory. So I got a job, actually, while well, I was still in high school, because I, I lived in a town where the university was in Davis, and I uh, got a job working in a biology genetics laboratory. And it was a great group, and they taught me a lot. And I, it was uh, a great salary position, which was unusual. There, so I kind of went through undergraduate in a biology laboratory in genetics. So I, you know, learned how to do starch gel electrophoresis, which is not going to be a term for me to. It was a real skill in those days, and I could do that. And and so I thought I was going to be headed. I'm going to be headed, frankly, but. And as most people don't, really, as I graduate, I like psychology, but I really studied statistics and methodology, mostly. And I learned how to work uh, mainframe computers, which was unusual in those days. So I had a lot of statistics and computer skills. So as I was working in this biology lab, which I enjoyed very much and enjoyed the people. And you know, they used to have uh, what were actual bulletin boards in those days where people would post jobs around the university. And I saw a posting for a person in the law school with a considerably higher salary than I was making in the biology lab. I mean, like, twice as high. So instead of dollar seventy an hour, it was, you know, real money, right? Yeah. So I thought, well, I have this loyalty to these folks. It's great. But On the other hand, there was a law professor at, at the new law school at Davis. It just started. His name was Floyd Feeney, prominent person in the criminal law at that time. He had been a member of the President's Crime Commission, 1967 President's Crime Commission. He had clerked for Justice Black, hero Black. And he came to Davis. And when he came, he came with a grant from the Ford Foundation, which uh, had just decided that they should put research into studies of criminal justice. And he had one of those. And he brought it to Davis. And he started some projects, uh, one on robbery in the city of Oakland. And I worked on that project as a coder. And so I took it. I, so I took the job, I have to say, and started working on that robbery project in Oakland. And it was where we went down and we actually coded. This is going to be kind of foreign in, in a way to, you know, but we coded from police file. We transferred a robbery cases in the city of Oakland. And that was my job. And then transferring them to punch cards, IBM cards, so I had that skill too, which is not the most exciting job in the world, but, uh, but I knew how to mount data tapes and stuff like that. And, and I knew statistics and I knew how to run mainframe computers. And so I did that for Floyd Feeney, Professor Feeney. And then he started a project on judicial decision making in bail in Los Angeles, actually. He asked me to work on that project and I did. And so I, and you're right, that led to my first academic paper on, because uh, I knew how to do multivariate statistics. And so predicting judicial bail decisions and actually working on substitutes at that time for a cash bail. The Vera Foundation had developed a release on on their own unrecognizance criteria. Community ties, it was called. I did a study showing that community ties predicted failure to appear and so forth better than cash bail. And the judges were mostly concerned with that. And he was a terrific person to work for. He let me do everything. He introduced me to the judges and I learned an awful lot. And, and I got so excited. I, I thought, well, okay, I'm going to go to law school because this is what you do. I mean, it, I kind of liked the criminal law and I liked the fact that you could do this kind of research. And And so I finished up my undergraduate work. And just before I finished, I, so I talked a lot to Floyd. I said, okay, well, I'm going to come to law school. And he said, fine, that'd be great, but you shouldn't. I said, what? he said, no, you should go get a research degree. In that, and there's three places you can go, Berkeley, University of Pennsylvania, or this new place called State University of New York at Albany. And, uh, but before you go, you should go take this class, undergraduate class. I was a psychology. I didn't take much sociology. So there's a guy here called Travis Hershey. You should go take his undergraduate class. So my last quarter as an undergraduate, I went and I sat in on, I took the, the class from Travis Hershey. I liked it because. Because he used the self-report method, which I was very interested in as a psychology. Psychologists use that a lot. But anyway, Floyd said, go to graduate school. And frankly, so I said, okay, should I go to Berkeley or Penn or Albany? And he said, well, Berkeley Pennsylvania well-known, but the best faculty is at Albany. So go there. My father wouldn't advise me in any way. Very, non, very kind of Rogerian, if you know psychologists, couldn't I said, well, yeah, you should go to grad school if you want to go to law school if you want to. Uh, they're they're all good, but he hadn't yet yeah. joined the university. Uh, two of my older brothers were got PhDs in psychology, at Johns Hopkins. So I thought maybe I'll do that. If they're doing that, but Floyd is very uh, a very influential and he uh, to me and and he said, there's these guys there. You can continue this kind of work. Leslie Wilkins. It was not sure if you know that name, but yeah, very prominent guy. And and then they gave me a fellowship, and I was married. My wife and I said you know, we can go to Berkeley, we know the Bay Area, but you know, we should use this opportunity to go there somewhere else. And we've kind of always had that idea. And so I thought, well, why not New York? Never been there. I'd never been pretty much east of California much, really. I thought, well, New York's great, all the skyscrapers and stuff. And of course, I missed that by about 150 miles because it actually all of it is in upstate New York, which I didn't realize. So we drove to New York and they had given me a fellowship which was so they paid for that but and when i got to new york it was a terrific place to be one of the first conversations i had was with a person named michael Hindelang, which is a name you probably do know and and michael i was in his class i waived the statistics and research design course by examination and now that caught michael Hindelang's attention because those are the classes he taught and love um, criminology and he said well what are you interested and i said well i don't know." But I took this class from this guy named Hershey. And he was kind of looking at me. And he became one of my best friends, Michael Heneligen. He's kind of looked at me with this kind of curious look. He said, oh, so you took a class from a guy named Hershey. I said, yeah. He said, well, "What? what about it? I said, well, I, I like this self-report method because it's got, I like the psychometrics of it. And I like that. It looks to me like, and I've also worked with police records because I had. I had. I said, those police records, you know. Are a bit sketchy, frankly. I mean, you know, I remember one thing that very that caught my attention was in those days they. So I was cutting all the robbery cases and from offense reports, and then we, the follow-up cases too about what happened to them. And I was we we're looking at clearance rates, and so I, I was doing this one time. And one day I I came across a follow-up report to a a common kind of robbery in those days. Today too, but more common then were called grab and flee personages, and as a robber, as you know, deputy a robber, and there are a lot of them, and they're all the same. I mean, a young guy ran up behind a woman, grabbed her purse, and ran away. And so I was coding these clearance reports, and clearance statistics were kind of important. And I came across this detective. Oh, yes. I mean, clear they had arrested one guy because he grabbed the purse, ran around the corner, and ran right into a police office, which is about the only way they ever caught anybody. in. And so the detective cleared 50 robberies by apprehension of a similar modus operandi offender. And I thought, well, yeah, that's not right. And that's actually... So the clearance rates were a political measure. They weren't really anything other than that. For the police. So I liked to self-report. It didn't rely on that. So Michael said, oh, he said, well, how would you like a job? And I said, okay. I got this fellowship. And he said, You can do your fellowship, but then you'll can you'll work on my grants. And I'm I'm working on self-reported victimization. And I said, Oh yeah, that's something I'm interested in. And so he hired me just about the third day. And I and then I worked with him, did my dissertation on victimization. He had a big project done. As you you know, you a lot, you know, Michael Hindelang was just a rock star, great person, more uh, closer to us in age, and just had huge interests and in projects and if you were empirically oriented and kind of quantitatively oriented he was the main guy there he hired me yeah. so i uh, worked on the studies of what became the national crime survey but were the mostly the pilot studies and we did methodological papers and he and i were just a lot of stuff together And so he was a uh, just a terrific mentor to a lot of people and the faculty there was just terrific and he had a research center, which I later became director of. And he was just um, a terrific, a guide, mentor. And then he and I became very close friends, and we worked together for a number of years until he sadly died at a young death of brain cancer. So, so anyway, that's you're going to need to interrupt me, actually.
0: <laughs> no, that was oh. fantastic. Uh,
2: but anyway, Albany was, a, and as you know, Albany still, but in those days was just. I mean, there were so many. So my office mate for a long time was Lawrence Cohen. You probably know his routine activity, Larry Cohen, Uh, for a long time. And I worked with James Garofalo and John Goldkamp. And he and I did a lot of bail research together. And of course, John and Rob were both uh, graduate students there. And it was just a a good group of lots of folks. And Michael gave us a lot of... He basically just said, here are some new data sets that nobody's looked at learn how to use them and we all had to do that, which was not easy in those days. We had you know we had to use mainframe computers and turnaround time was the shortest turnaround time was overnight. And so you had to do a little Fortran programming to, you know, mount tapes and get into the there wasn't advanced software. SKSS was just being used and you had to and a program called Biomed, you had to write the front end programs to it. So it took a and so you would Ask the computer programmer eleven o'clock at night, can I have a tape drive now? And you had to bribe that person. Probably now we can say that because it's not to give you the tape drive access. And we're all, you know, friendly with that person. And then we can run these huge data tapes. They were larger than any they were larger than the university used for its personnel system. And so we also built the computer system at the same time we were running these data tapes and worked on the and then Michael and I worked. He wrote a lot of papers together, victimization, and then my first book, his second, Victims of Personal Crime with Jim Garofalo, and and so it really launched my own work. So later, Travis came and worked at Albany. I was finishing up my dissertation with Mike and Leslie Wilkins, <laughs> and then Travis joined, and he and Mike Michael Hindelang had a and Michael Hindelang brought Travis to Albany, I mean Travis. Of course, was a professor at the time, so to say brought, he really worked hard and to great effect. and Travis moved from Davis to Albany, and we struck up a friendship and a collaboration. And he and Michael and I worked together. And when we worked I say we worked together, it's kind of unusual. And, and it's the way that Travis and I worked together for, you know 30 years, basically. We literally wrote together cards. So, kind of, so and this was before computers. so we Michael and I were, wrote together every day. Yellow legal pads, right? Uh, and then Travis joined the group and we and we literally uh, sat in the same room and wrote together. And then when Michael passed, Travis and I went to different universities, but we continued that when I went to uh, Arizona and joined him there. So... maybe what a different
0: remember. time to be writing on actual notepads. Oh, instead well, that's... Of yeah, on um, a computer. I hadn't well, yeah, and that, it's where all
2: these terms absolutely. come from, cut and paste, right? So you would... Yeah. And you're dependent on... And so we all knew how to type very well, which turned out to be probably the most important class I ever took. It was in high school. It was as an elective. I took typing. Mm-hmm. And I really learned how to type really fast because uh, the teacher was really hard and, and made us take tests every week. You had to improve, you know, on, on right. how many words and fewer errors and stuff. Well, of course, then the keyboard is, which is mm-hmm. kind of weird when I think about it now, it's still on the same keyboard. So I can work, I mean, so we learned all, so we wrote on legal pads, because that was the right pace, and then, but then you cut and paste, right, literally, Mm -hmm. you know, cut out that section and move it around, and then you would have this big, you know, scotch taped paper together, and, (laughs) you know, type it up, and stuff like that, and and that's how we began, and then, but we enjoyed each other's company a lot, because we are really very, very good friends, and so Mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun, and so Mike and I had a lot of fun, and He was also a very, very hard worker. And so the other thing, as, as was Travis, and I think one thing that they both taught me was, which everybody ends up learning who is in any way successful in anything, but in academia, it's just a lot of hard work too. And you, uh, so we worked very hard, but it was enjoyable because we liked each other. We. And both Michael and Travis have tremendous senses of humor. That I would say they're tremendous because they're a lot like mine, kind of a little bit. We like irony and sarcasm. So it's gotten us into trouble over the years. Less That's so good. Mike. I mean, he's a little bit more, he would kind of be able to extract it from our work. But Travis and I are more un, mm-hmm. undisciplined in that respect. And so, and Travis more than me, I have to say, but.
0: I was going to say, there's some papers and book chapters that Travis Hershey wrote that were on my comps that I was like, this is pretty witty. And, you know,
2: very witty. But but one thing is oftentimes it's great that you recognize that sometimes don't and that people don't. So they take it literally, but uh, rather than as actually the opposite of it. But yeah, both have tremendous senses of humor. So anyway, great partners and very important, obviously, for me, John Goldkamp. I've had a lot of great partners. And my dad and I wrote a book together. And we had a lot of fun. Now, we, we had this share. When he moved to Rutgers and we had to kind of share chapters and stuff like that, a little old fashion, John Goldkamp and I wrote three books together, actually. And so we actually had to share um, drafts. But I've had some really great collaborators. And I think that's one of the reasons why I like the field so much, to tell you the truth. Because academia can be kind of lonely. And, and scholarship is. You, at the end of the day. It's you. And so it's nice to have somebody that you can bounce things off of. And, and it makes, for me, it always maybe be more productive. Yeah. I think that's Absolutely. true of my colleagues too. Yeah. So,
0: you know, you mentioned how you started off really in more of this criminal legal decision making yes. frame for your, your research. And then, you know, you moved into work around theoretical ideas and crime and victimization. Was a lot of that transition having to do with the fact that you started working with Michael Hindling or was there something else Absolutely. that really?
2: Absolutely. And um, and I was just kind of naturally inclined to it because I think of my psychology background, basically. Mm-hmm. I, the program I went through was very research oriented. Um, as I mentioned, I, I, I mean, it, in those days, I had to take, um, I think, four statistics classes as an undergraduate. And they were actually not in the psychology department lots of methods, and always kind of interested in, in that. Uh, but I've always had kind of also kind of interested in policy. Michael and Travis both less so, I would say. And I think Michael even more or less so than Travis. Mm-hmm. But, if it, but both interested in in theory and and I would say measurement. So the two things that Michael and Travis, they're both thought of as in theory and probably me too in a way. But mm-hmm. but I would say methodology they were both methodologists and very interested in, in connecting the methods to the substance. Uh, Travis began that way as a graduate student at Berkeley, working with Hannah Selvin. His first book was actually what became known as Principles of Survey Methods. Mm-hmm. Causes of Delinquency was his dissertation. Yeah, uh, sometimes such to see, but as you can tell, the methods and the theory, and our view is Michael's view, Travis's mind—they're ineluctably connected. So you right. can't really divorce the two. And so you have to be attentive. And Michael, so Michael taught the statistics and methods sequence at Albany. I didn't learn them from him in the classroom as much because I just waved those. But I learned them from him every day and the work we did in the writing. Travis, as you can see, never could separate the two, doesn't, can't. But when I was a graduate student, principles of survey analysis was a required methods uh, his paper, False Criteria of Causality, in that book, it was a classic paper, still, still critically important piece that people sadly don't read as much anymore, but a very, very important set of ideas. And so both methods and theory were Mike's. But working on the victim, so we worked on, we did a lot of methods work on victimizations, actually, Mike and I did. We did papers on different biases in the method. And Michael, at the research center, Michael and Travis started to prod. I was the director of the research center at the time. So I didn't work directly on the project, but was the director of the center on a project on on self-report methods. And it became the book Measure and Delinquency with Joe Weiss, a graduate student with Michael at Berkeley. That book, I mean, that project kind of dominated a lot of work around the center too. Lots of graduate students worked on that project. I don't know if Rob worked on the victimization stuff. Rob was the kids a little bit later. He worked on the victimization part. I knew Rob more as a student than as a... Well, I've joined the faculty though. I mean, you probably mentioned that too, but I, so I got my dissertation, finished my PhD in very brief time. Maybe mm-hmm. not necessarily the best idea, but nevertheless did. And then joined the faculty. Also kind of a, I don't know if that's, it's kind of a questionable decision actually, but, but it yeah, was you actually,
0: don't see uh, it very often no?
2: Yeah. No, no, but, yeah, I, but, I, it, but it wasn't. I mean, it, it was good for me. And while well, Michael and Travis, of course, still there and, um, cause we just work together every day. That was great. Yeah. But the methods, piece, the victimization. So Rob and John were both students there. John a little closer to me, but a few years behind me, a couple of years maybe. I can't really quite Mm -hmm. remember. Because we then all became good friends and colleagues. So I I see them much more as, and did right away, because they all started working. Not Rob as much, but John. John for sure did his dissertation on victimization. I think Rob did victimization work for his dissertation. And I I was pretty sure I was on his committee. Because we women, everybody's committed, you know. But um, yeah. And then uh, when he moved here to Illinois, I, I had worked on the British Crime Survey. I had a, a consultancy at the Home Office, which was very important to me, too. I, I went to work with Ron Clark, who you probably know, the, Ron Clark, for the Opportunity Theory and Rational Choice. Yeah, Rational Choice. So Ron yeah. Clark was the head of the Home Office, and he asked me to come and work at the Home Office with him. They were starting the British Crime Survey, and I was a consultant to them, and I did. And Pat Mayhew, a terrific scholar, and they both influenced me a lot, both on the, on the opportunity theory stuff, which I then kind of—I had written the lifestyle theory with Michael, and so they knew that, and and they used that, and we we used it in the British Crime Survey, and so I did a monograph on the British Crime Survey and worked with them on that, and then and then Rob Gunderson was days, and I sent him the data when he was at Illinois on the British Crime Survey. So anyway, that's how that got connected.
0: Yeah, just a powerhouse group of people.
2: Oh, it's a tremendous group of people. And then Uh, I mentioned Larry Cohen was in our group at,
0: mm -hmm.
2: at Albany. And he hadn't started working on routine activity, but he worked on the victimization project also and published some stuff. He and I published some stuff together on victimization. And then he went to Illinois for his first job. He did his PhD with Michael at the University of Washington. Michael was his mentor. And so he moved to Albany to work, finish his dissertation and then work on the victimization. That was kind of a postdoc, really, for Larry. Yeah. And he and I became good friends and worked together. And then he's more in my cohort. And then um, he moved near to Illinois, where Marcus was, and Ken Land. He then went to, to Texas. Michael very sadly passed away. I moved to the University of Illinois. It, and actually, the job that Larry had left. To you took past. over? Yeah. <laughs> and then Rob took my job when I left alone. But Marcus was there. And I, of course, got to... He had the office next door, and Ken Land, and we were very much into the same stuff. I mean, lifestyle theory and routine activity theory have a lot in common, and so and so uh, they're natural natural colleagues. But we go back actually to graduate school. So,
0: yeah, very cool. This really ingrained network of really prominent criminologists now, especially within the theoretical
2: field, and you kind yes, of all the
0: influenced each other, and
2: absolutely, and. Um, you know, Ron and Ron and Pat were uh, Ron Clark. He was very interested in kind of designing out crime and so forth. He's a psychologist, but he was not. He thought he didn't think that most sociology or theory was. But he was the head of the research division, very young, a very young age. I mean, I'm, gosh, I don't. But he was in his thirties, I would guess, when he became the head. And that's the, the major research division in uh, Great Britain. And so, and so it's a great fortune that I got to. I still remember the conversation. I mean, it was at, the, at an ASC meeting and I was, I think I had just become an associate professor, maybe at Illinois. I think so. And I was about to move to California, which, because uh, my wife and I wanted to move back West. Mm-hmm. I love the University of Illinois, but we were always kind of looking for opportunities to get okay. back to the promised land and you know, all. And so we were okay. discovered it. But anyway, he came up to me and said, Hey, you know, we're interested in lifestyle and opportunity and stuff. Would you? Exposure, well, We we call it exposure and it, lifestyle exposure. And it's kind of, oppor- it's obviously an opportunity concept. And he said, Can you come to work at the home office for us? I said, oh, sure. If I can find a way to do it, so I got a way to do it. And so we, um, and so that was great. And and they were terrific and they are terrific people. And Pat Mayhew, who worked with Ron Clark, re, you know, was instrumental in the British Crime Survey, which then became European Crime Survey. So I mean, and uh, at the end of the day, Ron working on what became rational choice, but then also his, you know, his focus on situational crime prevention, which is a theory. Just look at the situation and how much can you get out of just looking at the situation? Very, very important idea. And he was doing that there as were the, the colleagues, Tim Hope and Michael Huff. Michael Huff, very, very smart guy, very important criminologist. And Brin worked on the opportunity theory. And Britain and I learned a lot from him and Pat and Ron and, and to see and basically kind of the idea, well, how far can you get just working on facts that don't require so it's very anti-theoretical in a way. And so I guess my I kind of took that and I said, you know, you guys think that's anti-theory. It ain't. It's so, a okay, important theory. Let's connect it to control theory. And control theory is very prominent. In Europe, still is as our self-report methods. If, if that includes me too, self-report for victimization and offending, and we worked on those together. And there, there's so much in common, including lots of folks in common. You know, as people now think about victim-offender overlaps and stuff like that.
0: All right. So, speaking of control theory, let's jump into you know your contributions surrounding control theory, in particular, a general theory of crime, which you co-authored with Travis Hershey, and it's you know a classic in the field of criminology. Well, I appreciate
2: that. Dates me, I guess.
0: <laughs> okay, but you also more recently came out with modern control yes,
2: theory. Yes, I do. I appreciate it. I thought about what I should have. You know, a lot of people their books. These are not my. <laughs> right. I didn't write the but I wish I had actually. But
1: uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. So we're really just kind of interested. You know, we know that a general theory of crime started to come out of your 1983 piece and your 1987 pieces which were really surrounding like the criminal career paradigm and kind of debunking it, so to speak. I Can like that just...
2: term, man. Yeah, <laughs> Yeah. My, my friend Al would not like you to say that. Yo, no, I know.
0: <laughs> Can you just kind of give us a little rundown on what was the motivation sure. behind self-control theory and writing this book?
2: Yeah, you know, under the condition that you realize that retrospective is more like retrospective imagination and recollection, so that's so uh, sure. So very interested in causes of delinquency, obviously, as was my kind of I mean, all I had to do was say, cause of delinquency. They said, how would you like to have a job? You know, I mean, that sort of, right. And so, so interested in control theory, Michael was in the self report method and Travis and, and Michael in their collaboration started a, a project kind of looking at the facts about crime and to, and to kind of saving the facts under the idea that. We know a lot about crime, and most sociology, frankly, is involved in debunking things. And that, at that time, still true in my view a lot. Instead yeah. of saying, look, we know a lot of stuff, and there's a tradition in this field, uh, more so than in, in many fields of saying, yeah, we don't know anything. Let's start with, and so we know a lot of stuff. What is it that we know? And so they started a series of, and they uh, ran a seminar. And the title of the seminar was Data Destruction Techniques How do you destroy data? So that's kind of, interesting in its own right. So I got interested in that. Mm -hmm. And so we, so Jim Garofalo and I and Larry Cohen, because we all, there was no difference kind of between our graduate group and our postgraduate group. We all kind of hung out together.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And so they wrote a couple of papers on that and Michael had written papers and Michael and I had written papers on it. And so the three of us, I had written a paper for that group on the age effect. So I picked age. I was always interested in it and as kind of a fact that the field didn't seem to understand very well, to say the least, right? Uh, and so in the classic, in the works then that were the classic, but they just come out, were Delinquency in a Birth Cohort, uh, Margaret Wolfgang's, Donald West, and Weston Farrington's book on, Donald West started the Cambridge Longitudinal Study, and that come out, McCord and McCord, there, there were kind of solid pieces of research. So I wrote a paper that summer, and we talked a lot about it, and and the three of us decided that we would write a paper on age and find out. And frankly, our you know kind of pocket hypothesis, given the crowd, Mike and I and Travis, was what we're going to do is show how social control theory explains the age effect. And we kind of thought it was going to be like kind of falling down a hill. I mean, it's just obvious. And so we thought, well, we'll do that. And so first we'll get the facts together. And that's kind of my job originally was... You know, creating data sets and we had to create them. I mean, about crime and age. And we did that. We started writing that paper. It sat, and the three of us started working on it. Sadly, that's when Michael fell ill, you know, couldn't continue with that project. And Travis and I did it later after we left Albany. But uh, we started working together on that. And it, uh, but what we concluded when we started doing that was actually, you know, the uh, control theory doesn't really do much better than anybody else in explaining the age effect. Which is kind of a kind of a big admission lost on the field, with Travis especially saying, you know, it's problematic. And we ought to say it's problematic. And so we kind of adopted that. And then Travis and I later decided that that actually age we should leave age alone. It's a direct effect. And stop pretending like we can and we still I still have that view, and this he he didn't pass away. There's facts and one of the biggest data destruction techniques in criminology is ignoring the fact. And that's not what science does. Science says, this is something that exists, understand its own terms. And then that's also liberating that when you say, none of our our theories actually explain it. So let's treat it as a direct effect. And that's Mm -hmm. what we do, still do. And say, well, Okay, that's one of the things we know. Crime will decline with age. And it does. And it resists. It still does. It's a big, robust fact. We call it a brute fact. stipulated. And now, well, that's a real liberating thing. You can say that's a direct effect. What are the other causes? That's how most theories and most sciences work outside of criminology. It doesn't try to explain everything. It tries to say, here's the things that are given. Here's the things that we should explain. But if you want to predict crime, what's your best variable to predict crime? Well, it's still true. It's beyond dispute. It's age. And so if somebody just asked you, and I'd say it's, it's, the, it's the best. This will happen to you throughout your career, by the way. You have to be careful who you announce your criminologist to. You've probably already learned that.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> because then that's all you're going to be talking about. Oh, yes. yeah. I never work on my ASD presentation on planes, because the people sitting next to me will look at it and then start telling me everything that they That's think is happened to you for five
2: <laughs> for the rest of your life. Yeah. Um, you know, your relatives, you go to a party, say you're a sociologist, say that you're a social scientist, but only with that kind of judicious caution should you say, I nice, nice study of crime. You'll be but anyway, so then we so then Travis and I we spent a lot of time. We, we spent more time on that paper and its derivatives than anything we ever did. And still did in modern control theory, came back to it. Still come to the same conclusion. I mean, you know, people in, in criminology that talk about stability and change, you know, they forget that stability is kind of an important construct for science, too. It's just something that you can hang your hat on. So actually, the age effect. But then we said, well, okay, we're going to need more than one concept just the truth of it. And we wrote the distinction between crime that really was the beginning of our revisiting social control theory to say, well, let's add age in a different way. You could see that if you now wanted to go back and look at cause of death, people struggle with age. They stipulated it. They said it's a measure of time. It, and of course the great the psychology doesn't do any better. And so, so psychology says it's says it's maturational reform. And you say, well, okay, what's maturational reform? And they say, age. You say, well, okay, why don't we call it age? Or they'll say something like that. And so and, I and most contemporary theories do the same things. I happen to have the view that you likely don't share, and a lot of people don't, that developmental criminology is just that. It's kind of a misspecification of the causes of crime. And it's making up things to explain what is, can you find variability in the age distribution? Uh, of course. But that doesn't obviate... The fact that if you if you just want to guess, and actually even in the even in the GLIP data and in every other in the in the, um, the Weston Farrington data, the crime declines with age in every group, high rate group, low rate group. So people often not, when trajectory modeling came in, they misspecified the high rate group because they didn't follow along. But you see, in every group, crime declines with age. It's it, you can call it level over some period if you want to. But that's just because you're not letting the the natural course take its effect. As you know, and we do a lot of this in modern control theory, because half the book is on policy. Now. And it's so criminologists systematically mislead policymakers. And I think that's a lot of what that's what we thought the criminal model did and does and did. I have the view that it was one of the most damaging thing that ever happened to public policy it was selective incapacitation and emphasis on deterrence. Neither one of them work. So Criminologists still lay around. They think as economists do and the Carney group, group Nagin colleagues, deterrence must work. Well, you know what? People have been, you know, in crime. Well, when are you going to show it, folks? It's yeah. been long enough. No, it doesn't. The police must have an effect. Well, they do. I mean, if you put a policeman at everybody's elbow, they won't commit crime. And that's what kind of the, the modern police, the police have a crime effect. Well, do, but look at all the co- negative collateral consequences of that. So our big, I think, contribution to that was it didn't catch on for a long time. Still having trouble catching on. The career criminal model is the opposite of sensible public policy. It's unfair. Um, there is no selective capacitation effect. General, people who commit crime and delinquency don't think about the criminal justice system. For deterrence to work, you have to think about the criminal justice system. Yeah. So, yeah, you can surround people by law enforcement, arrest them whenever you see them, go into so-called hotspot areas, put a policeman at every corner, arrest everybody for every trivial offense, and then you'll get the negative consequences of the criminal justice system that they always ignore. And they'll claim a crime reduction effect. So good science, good theory says, no, it's at the margin, no, it's at the core. And so people still say, well, We can explain the age effect. And when you look at what they do, they usually end up putting the dependent variable in the independent variable category and explain crime with crime. And so they say, well, of course, prior record, you know, predicts subsequent offending or lots of different ways to use crime on the independent variable side. But look at the consequences. Long prison terms, mandatory minimum. People still use incapacitation as a justification. There's an incapacitation effect. I think it's particularly important in white-collar crime, to tell you the truth. I think Trump should be incapacitated. I read a little piece about that, not too long ago. So, I don't need to get into politics, so I should stay. But, but frankly, it's an opportunity effect. That's what incapacitation is. Our theories explain opportunity effects. And so selective incapacitation, the career criminal model, and everything associated with it, is the wrong place for science to go i teach my undergraduates i'm interested in corrections i'd say do you want a program to work yeah well wait
0: yeah
2: and then it will work for lots of the correctional research not modern stuff but that's what people did and so they they said well people go with this program recidivate less you say well yeah when you put them in the in prison the first place they were 19 and now they're 30 and everybody you want to call it a treatment go ahead but the treatment is age. So take that into account first, order criminal justice system is expensive, has negative collateral consequences. And the big problem with it, for my money, for policy, and we spent a lot of time in modern control. there. We said it in your Crime. We said it in his papers. People never, they're so interested in the, in the career model that they ignored all of the consequences to it. But the fact of the matter is It focuses attention on the criminal justice system. And the criminal justice system doesn't cause crime, except in a negative way. At the margin, in both instances, people have adverse consequences for being involved in it in many ways. And the reduction in crime you get out of massive police presence and massive incarceration is relatively trivial. And we should stop saying it is. The police don't cause crime, the criminal justice system doesn't. But what does is paying attention. To early development, so the evidence on kind of preteen development is just overwhelming. M- most of it, sadly, to my mind, outside of criminology. So, if you look at the research we cite and say modern control, that even in the theory of crime had to be from psychology, economics fields apart from from crime. The, the best work now done on the effect of early child it is by economists. Mm-hmm. If you haven't read the word of James, work of James Heckman, I really Highly recommended to you, who has kind of proven that, you know, beyond question. And so there's this big, big policy effect out there that we know about that is a fact that we can tell policymakers, you want to reduce crime? Here's the thing. You have to get over your low self-control. It's going to take a little time, but invest in children. And if you invest in children, you'll lower their crime rate. But it's going to be 12 years from now, 15 years from now, and you just got to get over it because that's what we know. And we also know that investing in the criminal justice system, like I say, how many more studies do we have to have of how deterrence doesn't work? Severity of sanction doesn't work. The certainty, only when it's real mm-hmm. certain, right? So, and then you have all these problems associated with it, you know? But whatever the sanction me- mechanism is, schools, you want to lower the crime rate, stop throwing people out of school. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we've known for... Since people started doing educational studies, that continuation in school in education is the key to mobility. It was in the fifties; it was, it is now. So, when you remove people from school, or when you put impediments into going to school, you take them out of the labor force, or you make it so that they can't work. You know, by saying you got a criminal record for it. It's all adverse. Stop doing it now. People did the. You know, if you get robbed, you call the police. Of course. Did the police have an effect, yes, they do. Basically, their effect is much more important in the procedural justice matters than it is in the reduction of crime matter. But we, all, we see all that in modern control theory. It's but, a good book. Well, thanks, I appreciate it. It's uh, it's available for everyone at amazon.prime. If I had a copy here, no, nice. <laughs>
0: here, I'll do it. It's oh, like great. great, thank you very much. Yes. Yes. There we
2: yes. go. <laughs> oh, by the way, I'll say an anecdote about that. So, you see, how it has kind of a bland cover yeah yeah so travis and i have had this thing for our whole careers is because you know we don't actually like the criminal justice system or policing or court really has much effect but every time you write a book and you go to the publisher they like to put criminal justice images on the cover yeah they do so they're bars cop cars handcuffs mean looking guys you know delinquent whatever right and so we've always tried to not get, and so the general theory, so we we spent a lot of time on general theory of crime. We had a deal with the publisher. We won't have criminal justice images. So I see you have a copy of general theory of crime. Yeah, I and do. so it's a, it still is a guy behind bars, right? But it's like, so this time around I just laid down the law and I said <laughs> you will not have, you know, so you can see it now, right? It's a guy behind bars, right? Yeah. So at least we got him yeah. to make it Kind of symbolic and not, but you should see I mean the first copies it's always of a cop car with flashing lights and stuff. of course, and they always say they always say the same thing is well it's, it's better for selling books, and I always say the same thing you're not going to sell any books it's an academic. <laughs> Yeah. You know, not, this is yeah. not for money you know yeah, yeah. So, that's, that's
0: interesting that's, I, I actually hadn't put t- together that this was someone behind bars yeah I don't well uh,
2: I, mean, no, I, I didn't say yeah. it, it was not this yeah. uh, yeah, interesting um, yeah yeah uh, travis reissued causes of delinquency and years after it was published the original copy is pretty mm-hmm. banal isn't it but he forgot about that I think it was a transaction. It was the University Press. It's right. That's Rutgers. It was at the time Rutgers University Press. And they put a, a picture of, of a kind of criminal on the cover of the, of the reissue. And so he sends me this copy of it. This shows sort of his humor. And he inscribed it saying, I know we did a lot of work together, but the most important contribution you ever made is to keep these things off the cover. And I forgot to ask you what the cover should be about this. Have you got that reissue where it's I do. Disease. I don't have,
0: yeah. Yeah, what you I say, it's like off my, yeah.
2: Yeah, they put like a, a delinquent or
1: something on the cover. Yeah. There.
0: It's a little bit better.
1: <laughs> a, yeah. so anyway. He didn't
0: ask <laughs> you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, he should have asked. Well, we're starting to run a little bit out of time. You yeah, haven't covered one. any of the topics you wanted to ask. Us. <laughs> Go ahead. That's correct. fine.
0: You've covered a lot of them, actually. Yeah, yeah, you
1: actually did cover a lot of them. But there is one question that I've, I've always kind of wanted to ask. And it's about this book chapter that Travis wrote in 2004, in which he basically says we kind of need to redefine self-control, and self-control and social control are essentially the same thing. And then, like, so I noticed that you know Travis was the solo author on it, so I always kind of wondered what your thoughts or like what input you had on that chapter, where he kind of really starts to kind of bring back. Social control, which Ron Akers dubbed social bonding theory.
2: Well, that chapter's spot on. So, so the and so I'd say that that was always my view, and you, you can see in some papers I wrote too, if you look at them and that through that line. in the but it was so when we went jail theory of crime, we never even gave it a second thought. Our theory is control theory, and so mm-hmm. and that's the theory that underlies causes of delinquency and jail theory of crime. So we always thought as a different explication of control theory. And we were kind of surprised when the field didn't see it that way. Some people didn't see it that way, especially Ron. And so and earlier reviewers. So said thought, oh, wow, that's kind of interesting. They don't see the connection. But the, the kind of first connection is. So, so the short answer is it's important for Travis to write that paper, not me. And, and, but you, and
0: so, you feel the same way, though.
2: Oh, absolutely. Of course. Yeah. And well, you can see it in modern control theory, right? Yeah. So and I think you could see it in subsequent. In other papers but when you look through those eyes yeah the problem is for intersection of the theories and this kind of brings you to methodology the indicators are the same and then they're difficult to disentangle i write about that in a paper called the i don't know the empirical status of control there's about that time somewhere but you think so attachment so in our in the general theory of crime we spend a lot of time talking about the family model
0: mm. and the
2: first element of the family model and, and a lot of people in our field missed that. They call it a, a three variable model, which of course it's not. It's the very first thing we say is attachment is what matters. Yeah. So you start with attachment and that's the predicate. Well, so self control gets created that way because of the relationship between caregivers and their child. So you, and that's Piaget. If you, if you're a psychologist, that's Piaget's model. We become the people that we are influenced by. Yeah. And that's our early caregivers. So there's no way to disentangle them. And so we kind of, it's also why we didn't write about morality. Hershey already had. There's a, it's not so that, so if you look at, that's a very careful paper that Travis wrote. Our, our read is Sutherland address, and not a Sutherland address, his Stockholm address, same thing. Because he's restating that again. It's like you guys are not getting it of for him. That's as close as you're ever going to get for him. So it's like, yeah, the control theory, that's the theory. And they're different expressions. So I teach control theory to undergraduates do is from Bentham. They are the rational choice theories, basically. And commitment is obviously the economic part of the model and so forth. And so belief is the moral component. And as Bentham said, it's the most important component. And we say that in the, I think, maybe... I've always thought the most important chapter general theory of crime is the second chapter, not the fifth. Everybody always thinks the fifth, the self-control. But that's what self-control. Okay. So we I don't think Travis ever uh, wrote a word that I don't agree with. He probably did before I started working with him. I don't know. I have to look back. At him then. But
0: Before your influence took a toll on him. <laughs> well, it's a, it's,
2: it's, you know, it's, I did a kick out of a lot of things, including this question in a way, in a more subtle way. But people say, oh, you know, I see where you are. And Travis says, And I say, that's kind of interesting. We were sitting side by side when we wrote it, and you don't actually. And you don't know what you can't for that. But so, yeah. So that's a a good piece, I think, but it's the general theory of crime. Mm -hmm. And so it never occurred to us that people would think of them as anything other than control theory. And so it kind of surprised us in a way that people had that view, or that especially hurt Travis's view because he was saying, why are they saying I abandoned?
0: I'm fairly certain that's how we learned about Travis's book chapter. Almost that exact language, which is why we were interested to ask you about it.
2: That you learned about his book chapter about how? By him? Well, that he was like abandoned. A, yeah, that abandoned uh, social control. Not, not, I tell you, there's not a single. So we were, So the other thing about Jennifer theory of crime, why did we write that? So there's the age thing. But when we looked at causes of delinquency and we sort of said, well, the theory is great. The operationalization of it is pretty good. The, the self, the problem is, of course, people take these measures and reify. Them. Mm-hmm. They do that in criminology kind of all over the place with self, with self control. The first and people. I would measures. Take measures <laughs> and reify them. But look at what psychologists do with self regulation. So economists use self reported delinquency scales as a measure of self-control when they look at education stuff. They don't use this. They say it's a self-control measure. So we're looking at causes of delinquency, and we're thinking about control theory. We say, well, there's a little too much. The independent and dependent variables are too connected. So actually, things like smoking and general deviance things are not independent variables. They're dependent variables. We've got to make a correction to that. And general theory of crime does because Mm -hmm. we... We say the generality effect was not appreciated. Also, we didn't like the fact that because it had time had moved on, in part because of Wayne Osgood's work, actually, the generality effect became known. And in psychology, the generality effect, we said, well, then you can't have a legal definition of your field, which criminologists still do. I mean, it's a, so the definition it shouldn't be juvenile delinquency as a violation of the law. And so we wanted to correct that. And so that we do that a lot theory of the crime and age. And so that, so we have to acknowledge that age. The other thing is that cause of delinquency, because it was just a teenage sample and wasn't attending to the rest of the field, didn't realize in the continuity effect, the stability effect. So people mischaracterize what we say about the stability effect all the time that oh, the way you were at eight years old is the way you'll always be. Well, that's crazy. We didn't say it. Never did. People mischaracterize, especially Ron and early reviewers and early people who talk about stability, where they mistake the um, unreliability of their measures for lack of stability. So a couple of the early papers on stability, which are just not very good research, in our opinion, they don't realize that their measures, and this is why methodology and substance has to go together, their measures of self-control have unreliability in them. And some of them, a huge amount of unreliability. You can see that we critique that in modern control theory pretty explicitly. So their measures are manifestly unreliable. So they say, well, we gave this to people when they're eight, and then we gave it to them when they're 12. First of all, that's kind of ridiculous, period. But okay. And their self-control measures change. Well, of course they do, because eight-year-olds and 12-year-olds don't answer your questionnaire the same way. It's what psychologists call a lack of criminologists who use other people's data tend to use internal consistency measures as reliability. Psychologists know there are lots of measures of reliability. Once test-retest. And if you can't show your measure as test-retest reliability, it doesn't belong in the science. Well, a lot of that instability, no, there's not very much of it, actually. There's four or five papers. Their measures obviously lack reliability. They say, well, there's not stability. And Hershey wrong. Well, first of all, we didn't say it was, it's a correlation. And the correlations at that time in the regression literature were, they probably hovered around 0.5 to 0.7%, decent, but not over, and some 0.8. And, and so that's stability. And when you have correlations of that side, you can't ignore it because it means there's continuity in a person characteristic. And so that's our main The Stability is not, people say it's set in stone. Well, you won't find that in the general theory of crime. You won't find that anywhere. It's made up by people who wanted to critique it for other purposes. So I'm sorry, I kind of that's probably a longer answer. Than, but we're back on Travis's paper. So that's a great paper, important paper. Important for Travis to say that, not me.
0: Yeah, I, that paper is really interesting. I've read it multiple times, just like all of your work. I mean, if you ask Jose, he'll tell you I'm a control theorist. So I'm very well, much for, in Jose, your camp. Jose is
1: control theorist. I would argue that she very much is. <laughs> great, congratulations!
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: You're so well ahead of. Uh, you know. I really.
0: try.
2: Yeah, that's great, and Jose. By the way, Jose is going to come around. You'll see.
0: I know. No, I, I keep uh, trying. Well. I keep
1: trying. He, he likes methods, so you know. Every now and then, yeah. I'll find myself thinking, like, "Am I a control theorist in denial? I'm not sure anymore."
0: You are. I'm going to bring you there. <laughs>
1: yeah. That's the first step. There are these support groups
2: I can, you know, <laughs> uh, you know to put you in. So I know We're working it on it. Time. Yeah.
0: Do you so have nice time?
2: do we- appreciate you doing this. I think this is a great thing you're doing, by the way. Not me. But it's it's really important yeah. to give people a glimpse of uh Because there are surreal people, too. Yeah. Sort of. I mean, <laughs> not you know, completely. You know, but it's great that you're doing this. I appreciate it very much.
0: Yeah. We love having some of you know the more well-known theorists on to kind of break down the theory and talk more about it than what people might just read you know in the book which is also important but breaking it down i I I think is cool
2: Um, yeah yeah it's great well if you have any more questions i'm happy but i know i've used a lot of your time so
0: i have one more and it's a quick one if you have time
2: yeah i do yeah
0: what advice would you give to a newly hired assistant professor michael
2: Well, part of the problem is that was one really stubborn guy.
1: <laughs> so got
2: what's on mine. Yeah. But, you know, but stubbornness is a virtue in scholarship, not a, you know, overweening stubbornness. You're not a ridiculous, but consistency is a virtue, too. And don't take every, crit, you know, not every criticism is right. And a lot of people, they, they sort of get in the field by that way. So it's not very hard. It's also a lot of fun. And it's also the intellectual challenge of any field. And so the intellectual challenges of theory are some of the most interesting. I still think they are. I mean, you see, we read in Control, we just wrestle with them. I mean, half that book is, and some of the, and you know, and along comes P.O. Wickstrom, and he writes this situational action theory, which I think is just great, you know, the second best theory, really, you know, I mean, in the field. It's really challenging. It's really, some of my best friends are theorists. When we get together, Marcus Felson. Routine activity theory, by the way, general theory, yeah. and all of the criticisms that you could launch against I other, that you can launch against. But I think routine activity theory is extremely important. It is a ground for public policy. We use it a lot. And oh, I think lifestyle theory uh, mm-hmm. is real important and is true. And time has shown it to be. the the empirical evidence. So I'm just on this empirical evidence on general theory of crime and routine activity theory would convince most. Failed. we better get behind this stuff because there's a lot of there's truth there and we can really build on that so that's one thing but it's don't get discouraged send things out don't believe take reviews seriously but not all reviews are right and they're full of all the kinds of biases and strange things that occur in any aspect of human existence the only way not to get criticized is to not do anything so if you've got a thin skin do something else. If you don't want criticism, don't write anything. But then you're not gonna So so let's see, one of the reviews on so my most cited paper is the age theory. It Might have been, I think that's probably still true. And it's like, you know, cited a lot, I would say. I can remember one of the reviews said this paper shouldn't be published anywhere. That's the review.
0: That was it? That's all yeah. you got. <laughs> right.
2: It's so wrong. It shouldn't wow. be published anywhere. You know, and we had a good and I and so I don't think I've ever written a paper that didn't get so roll with it, and so what I tell people is read the criticisms, set them down a little bit, and then say well, which ones of should I, you know, take seriously. And if they're statistical things, there's some I should have done differently. If they're or whatever, address them. But you don't have to believe them all. Mike Hindelang had a he taught me a, a lesson. Some other people, so he and I wrote a lot together. And one of the things that we did early on, we'd write, write a paper together. And he said to me, okay, prepare three envelopes. And I said, what What do you mean? He said, well, the first place we're going to send it, and then the second place we're going to send it, and then the third place we're going to send it. Address them now. And I said, what? He said, yeah. He, said, well, he explained to me just what I said. We'll get reviews. If they take it, great. If not, we'll take what they said seriously. Do whatever we think is right and send it somewhere else. Or we'll just throw it. And, you know, not all the papers you write do you ever publish. Sometimes you say, whoa. Yeah, they were right. You know, I should have used the durbin Kulatsky t test instead of the Asmirinov, Smirinov correlate, whatever it is. Wow, we better show that. We better do it differently. So accept criticism, but don't be stubborn. Trust yourself. Have confidence in yourself. You know what you know better than other people do. You just do, and uh, you will. So trust yourself, treat them seriously, and then Move on. When you're an assistant professor, other advice, of course, is don't get swept up in the service stuff. People will, and frankly, wherever they are, your colleagues will take advantage of you in that way. Don't let them. Do your share, you know. But whatever, you know. Increasingly, pay attention to your teaching. It's important, and that's it's important at every, every job in every university you have. So it used to be that was not true. And when I was hired at the University of Illinois, a great university, great research university. I said to the dean, the same question you're going to ask him, what would I do to get promoted around here? The dean said, you know, the big three, teaching, service, and research, and first they don't count, pay attention to your research. Nobody would say that today. And they they shouldn't have said it then. Teaching matters a lot. A lot of the enjoyment of your career is in the teaching. Everybody will say that. It's true. It's the most important thing that you do. Don't neglect that. Academia is a great career. One of the things it gives you is a lot of chances for mobility. So if you, Mm -hmm. I think I've worked at six different research universities, maybe seven, I kind of lost track.
0: I think six. I think you're right.
2: Is it six? Yeah. And you can move around, but it's great. You find the one that you like, you know, or the place that you like. You get to travel a lot. Do that. I now got a lot of time on it, on comparative criminology. I think it's real important methodologically. We don't think about that as much as we should. It also, if you have this fact approach that I learned from Michael and still have, which is what are the facts? One of the big ways you can look at facts is comparatively. And there's a lot. There's a consistency of a lot of stuff wherever you look. So I, I like comparative work that you can travel if you like to travel. It's also a good career to have for that for that reason. And uh, so I said, what would I tell young Michael I, I What I tell him is you are one lucky guy. And that's that's absolutely true you're at is adventitious this guy sent you to upstate New York you didn't even know where it was which <laughs> is true there was no field of criminal justice you know that's why he said you can go to Pennsylvania and it could that would be another place to go or Berkeley he said, but go there because there's a lot of good people people matter and it's yeah. so working with good people you know who help you out that matters and so that but I would have said you're you're lucky to be where you are. And to be surrounded by the people that you're surrounded by. And I've been like, I've been fortunate in that my whole life. Very supportive family. It's always been, um, you're fortunate. That's the advice that I give him. He wouldn't have listened, but you know. (laughs) You're stubborn. (laughs) Stubbornness, consistency. To use those, People use the expression a lot consistency is the hobgoblin of a little mind. You've heard that? Yeah. That's not actually close. That's not the real quote. A foolish consistency. Is the hobgoblin of a little monk. Sensible consistency is how you do great theory. So keep after it.
1: Yeah. Well, on that, I think that's the perfect note to end on. And thank you so much. for My pleasure. Thank day. you.
2: See, it's a pleasure talking to you guys. Yeah. Thank
0: you keep so out. much. Thank you. I'll
2: enjoy following you guys.
0: The Criminology Academy is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at The Crim Academy. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please rate, review, and subscribe. Alternatively, let us know what you think of the episode by leaving us a comment on our website, thecriminologyacademy.com. And lastly, share The Crim Academy episodes with your friends and family.